confidence in Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. Give it up for Jack, everybody. What's up, guys? Wow, it's great to be here. Joe invited me down early this summer, and I've heard a lot of great things about Ankeny Salt. It's good to be with you guys. Heard from Nick and Rachel Harsh, my friends up in Ames, where I work at Cornerstone. Uh, they love this place, and so it's a really fun vibe to be in here. Nine square before Salt. We do it after, so not quite as cool up in Ames. But like I said, I work at Cornerstone Church with uh, Iowa State students, Salt Company, some Cyclone fans in the house tonight. It's great. A few, yeah. It is weird seeing some Hawk, some Iowa shirts and like Iowa hats. Not used to seeing that. We won the Cyhawk series, so it's tough. You know, we're the best school in the state. DMAC, Iowa State, that's it. Um, but yeah, me and my wife will actually be moving in a year to Eugene, Oregon to plant a church. There's a duck shirt. I don't know why you have a Skoducks, quack, quack, Skoducks. I saw the Oregon shirt. I'm like, why is there an Oregon shirt in Ankeny, Iowa? But you're moving with us next year as well. So move with us next year. We're planting a church and a salt company in Eugene, Oregon. We're really pumped. Beautiful place. It has a lot more hills than Iowa. So we're really excited about that. Um, one more group of people I want to shout out before we enter in tonight. It's at the Blono Crew, the Illinois State. So my pal Jonah uh, over at Illinois State texted me this week. It's like praying for me, encouraging me like he does and said they're watching tonight. So shout out to Tweet Tweet, right? Tweet Tweet. Illinois State, the other ISU. Uh, we love Jonah. Um, yeah, tonight I want to enter in uh, with a question for you guys. And the question is simple. It's what is like the nicest thing someone's ever said to you? It's like the nicest thing anybody has ever said to you in your life. Maybe it's, you know, someone who's just complimented like hair or something. I love Luke's hair. I was complimenting earlier. I decided to grow out my hair. And every time I see Luke, I'm like, I just want to be you. Um, or, or maybe it's something about your style or your character or what you've done, what's like the nicest thing you said about someone. And I was thinking about this tonight, you know, what's the nice things I can say, you know, thinking of two people, thinking of Joe, you know, a nice thing to say about Joe is that every time he walks in a room, the smile of Joe Neely's is incredible, you know, like lights up a room, everyone knows it, Joe's smile, incredible, or Jonah over at Illinois State, the most humble guy I've ever met in my life, you know, nice things to say about someone. I don't know what people have said about you, um, but think about that, the nicest thing someone's ever said about you because true empowering words to us really change us and they affect us. The nice things people say about us or things that are true about us, when they're said over us, they actually allow us to live into our identity. Um, and tonight I wanna talk about a few nice things that we're gonna hear from Romans chapter eight. Before that, I wanna talk about a great speech that was once said. I don't know if any, we have any sports fans or sports movies fans, um, but anybody seen the movie Miracle, Miracle on Ice? Okay, if you haven't seen it, you need to watch it this weekend. It is one of my favorite movies. And Miracle on Ice is about the 1980s USA Olympic hockey team uh, that ends up winning gold. It's an incredible movie. It's, you gotta watch it, it's great. But the climactic moment of this movie is the USA Olympic hockey team, made up of all college students, underdogs in the Olympics, get all the way to the semifinal round and they're up against the Soviet Union, which is like Russia, now Soviet Union. I don't know how that works but it works, uh, the Soviet Union then. Um, and they're about to play the Soviet Union who is like the best team in the world. They have been the best for a long time. And the USA team, like everyone is surprised that they're winning. So they're sitting in their locker room about to have the biggest moment of their lives, the best moment of their lives, you know, nervous, scared, about to play in the most important game they've ever played in. And they're sitting in their locker room and their coach, Herb Brooks, walks in. And if you ever, you know, think about nice words said to someone or true words said over someone, 
Some of the best words ever are locker room speeches that are said over people. And Herb Brooks walks in this locker room, all these you know college age hockey players, and he gives the best speech ever. If you've seen the movie, it's like the best moment. You're just like, I wanna be a hockey player. Like I wanna, I wanna wear the United States uniform, I wanna play hockey. But Herb Brooks looks at his team and he says some true words over them. He says, if we played them 10 times, they might win nine, but not this game, not tonight. Tonight we skate with them, tonight we stay with them and we shut them down because we can. Tonight, we are the greatest hockey team in the world. You were born to be hockey players, every one of you. And, if you, were meant to, and you were meant to be here tonight. This is your time, this is your time. Now go out there and take it. And with any good sports movie, hockey team goes out, dramatic moment, and they go and win the game, you know? But what happens is that hockey team listens to their coach, they hear true words about them, encouraging words, empowering words, and they live into those words, and it actually changes how they play. And so tonight we're gonna be walking into Romans 8, some of the greatest words, almost maybe the greatest locker room speech over the Christian from Paul, the end of chapter eight. Um, And this summer, you guys have been walking through the chapter, like Joe said, chapter eight, thinking about the new life um, in Christ, what it means to have um, new hope, a new identity, a new promise, how the Christian life actually changes everything about us. And tonight is no different than any other of those weeks. Um, And my hope for us tonight is that as we look at Paul's final words, it would allow us to have new confidence in our Savior. So for those of you who follow Jesus, we're gonna hear the greatest speech ever told to Christians, some of the greatest words ever spoken about Christians, a reminder for all of us who we are in Christ. Because if you're anything like me, anything like most Christians, we tend to believe this little voice in our head that tells us who are the false things about us, tells us the things that aren't true about who we actually are, false things. And I wanna remove that voice in your head and tell you what's true about you tonight. And for those of you who don't know Jesus, man, I'm glad you are here, like Joe said, but I wanna invite you in and I want you to hear some of the greatest words that Christians have to hear. And I wanna invite you to accept those tonight as well. So Romans 8, 31, 39, you can turn there. Um, Paul's words to the Roman church. At the top section of your Bible, there's this little subheading. In my Bible, it's called the Christian triumph um, or the believer's triumph. And so we're gonna read about that tonight. So read with me and we'll stop and kind of talk through it the rest of the night. So Romans 8, 31. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? So stop right here for a moment. Verse 31, before we go in, I wanna highlight something that happens right at the beginning of verse 31. It says, what then? are we to say about these things? Paul, throughout this whole section, is gonna ask a bunch of rhetorical questions, kind of to drive his point home about what he means about things. But he's asking us right away in verse 31, drawing our attention in to ask the question, what are we to say about these things? Like, what are we to say about these things? Like things, what, what does he mean? And right away when I was reading this, I was like, man, what things is Paul referring to? Well, previously, as you guys have read all through chapter eight, and even specifically chapters five through eight in Romans, Paul has been like spitting fire, preaching amazing stuff about the Christian life. Been telling the Christians in, in the Roman Christians all about what's true about them. And I wanna read a few things that Paul has said previously to this. I mean, Romans 5.1 states, therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.20, the law came along to multiply the trespasses but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. 
Romans 6.11, so then you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed. Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things Paul has spoken already. Paul is saying in the opening line of verse 31, what should we say about these things? Everything he just communicated from chapter five up until now, he's saying, what do we say about all that? What are we to say about the sufferings of this present time? What are we to say about the wages of sin is death? What are we to say about grace being multiplied? All things you have heard from Romans eight this summer, what do we say about that? I mean, this is Paul gearing up like the Herb Brooks style, about to walk in the locker room to tell the Christians what he wants to say. Like gearing up to enter in to give the locker room speech, the true words over, over the Romans about what is true of them. We're go, what we're gonna find fascinating tonight is all the rhetorical questions that Paul asks us to only drive points home a little harder. And for the rest of this text, as we read through, I want pr three promises to be clear to us. Three promises Paul is reminding us of in the end of Romans 8, a promise of protection, a promise of of justification and a promise of assurance. Three things, protection, justification, and assurance. Ruth me again, starting in the middle of verse 31. If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he also not with, also with him grant us everything? First promise, protection. If God is for you, who can be against you? There is nothing, there's absolutely no one in the universe that is more supreme or has more supreme power than the God we serve. The one who set the stars and the planets in motion, set the sun in the sky, created every human being and everything on the earth. There is no one more powerful and there's nothing created that is more powerful than our God. And it's saying here that he's the one for you. In a world where there's so much oppression, opposition to us, sin, our flesh, the culture, the devil, we need a God that, that, that is powerful, that is for us. And Paul doubles down on this truth. He looks at the, end of, at the end of verse 32. It says, he didn't even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. You know, in, in the movie, pause quick, in, in the movie, Emperor's New Groove. I don't know, I have a lot of movie references tonight. I'm not a big movie guy, but I went there. I just came to my head. I don't know why. But in the movies, Emperor's New Groove, Kronk, you know, I don't know if you guys know, and he has like the two little guys two little guys on his shoulder, you know, and they're like speaking in his head. And he's like, what is happening? It's like too many like devil cronk and like angel cronk. That's what I think of <laughs> when I think of the Christian life, because often the, the little guy on our shoulder is whispering in our ear and telling us false things about God. Like it'd be like, we have a false little cronk, maybe, maybe a false little Jack, not cronk, on our shoulder, whispering in my ear, like God is not for you. Like what has he done in your life? Don't you see he hasn't shown up to protect you? All false things that our head tries to convince us of. False things that try to rewrite the narrative of what we think about God. So we need to blow the little guy off our shoulder for a second because God proves his protective characteristic by sending his only son, only son that he loved to the earth, the son in Jesus who would walk alongside humanity. And God would allow that son to be crucified for us, beaten and killed, to put death and to bear his wrath. You know, the God, who, the God who created everything, our all powerful God would put the wrath of the world on his son's shoulders. God would do that. And we wonder why. 
And one of the answers is this, is that it's to prove that there is no one in the world that he, that he is more for than you. More, there's no one in the world that he is more for than you. No one he wants to protect more than you. He gave up his own son so that you could have protection from our God. He has proved that with Jesus and proved that with his power, he is for us to protect us. No one is for you more than God. That's what we learn in Romans 8. No one is for you more than God. You may have some incredible people in your life that support you and are behind you with anything you do. Moms, dads, boyfriends, girlfriends, friends who would support you in, in any circumstance, would protect you in any circumstance. But God has been, you, been with you and for you and protecting you since day one. He knit you together in your mother's womb and he will be with you longer than anyone else will be with you through eternity if you believe in him. There is nothing here or there that has the ability to separate you from the protector in our God. So moving on, let's look back down. Verse 33, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and is intercedes and intercedes for us. Our second promise that are made in these verses is justification. Second promise, justification. God is the one who justifies. He is the one to make things right, to declare that you are right before him. But there are these questions that Paul is asking us that actually stick. These rhetorical questions like, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Who is the one who condemns? Questions that make us like stop for a second. And if I'm being honest, I'm looking at these questions going, who can condemn? Who can bring an accusation? And maybe you think of someone that could bring an accusation against you or could condemn you. But often I think, me. Like I'm the one who could bring an accusation against myself. I'm the one who can condemn myself. I know my sin and my past and my shame. I can easily condemn myself. And I think all of us can answer the same way that all of us can easily condemn and bring an accusation against ourselves. I mean, so often in all of our heads, we talk to the worst parts of who we are our sin and shame. And many of us believe that the God we serve would do the same thing to us. We believe that God would look at us and be like, oh yeah, there are reasons to condemn you. There are reasons to accuse you. Every wrong step we make, we think that God would be disappointed in us. I mean, looking down at us, whispering in our ear, there she is. What a gossip, man. Still a porn addict? Time to condemn him again. Drunk again? I've had it with these people. Look how greedy they are, how much they care about what others think about them. There's the voice in our head that can convince us that God says these words about us. A wrong voice that makes us believe the wrong things about God, but that's not it. How does Paul answer his own question? He says, God is the one who justifies, justified, when you believe in Jesus, you are instantaneously made right before God. No questions asked, no qualification, no application, no test. You become right with God when you believe, him, believe in him in an instant, that fast. When you believe in Jesus, God looks at your sin of your past, of your present, and will keep looking at it in the future and will have no record of it, no record of wrong. There is no accusation or condemnation that can come against God's elect. And we need to believe that tonight. He looks at the sinners who deserve accusation and condemnation and all he sees is a perfect Jesus standing in front of them. So who can con condemn you? Nobody. Because Christ Jesus died for our sins and even more is interceding for us on our behalf in heaven. So the voice on your shoulder, 
for those of you who think of the accusations and condemnation in your life can, can strip you from the Father, that is totally false. You are justified in the eyes of God. So take that little thing off your shoulder, break it in half and you scream when you hear those things into that voice at the top of your lungs, God has justified me. There is no one that can bring an accusation against me. In the deepest moments, sin and shame, look to verses 33 and 34 and you yell at the top of your lungs, God has justified me. Christ Jesus is in heaven and on my side. Nothing or no one can take that away from me. A God who would clothe us in righteousness and will continue to remove every spot and wrinkle from us. So we have two promises so far, protection and justification. And this last one, assurance. Verse 35, read with me. Now who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are putting to death all the day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's rhetorical question here is one that many of us ask, right? I mean, what can separate you from the love of God? Or what could separate us from the love of Christ? And there's this really interesting part in here, kind of that I wanna stop and pause on. Interesting part in the middle of this section on Romans 8, where Paul quotes from Psalm 44. If you look back, it says, as it is written, because of you, we're, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. It's this weird line that when I read it for the first time, I was like, what is happening there? It comes from Psalm 44, which is really interesting because Psalm 44 is a psalm of lament, a psalm of sorrow, a psalm of questioning God, a questioning who, who he is, who his character is. I mean, Psalm 44 even states, it says, wake up, Lord. Why are you sleeping? Get up. Don't reject us forever. Why do you hide and forget our affliction and oppression? So why the heck would Paul quote Psalm 44 in the middle of an incredible chapter on the love of God, on justification of God? Why would he do that? Well, I think that many of us and I think Paul knows that many of us ask the question, when we ask the question, who can separate us from the love of God? We have a similar, a similar response to what Israel was going through. We share in the same questions and doubts that they do. Same questions and doubts about God. Like, where are you at, God? Where have you been all my life? Telling him to wake up, asking him if he can hear us. Don't reject us. Please don't forget about us. Things that we all have said before about our God. And maybe today here in Ankeny, at DMAC, it sounds like this. God, how could you love me when I can't seem to find a true friend? Or God, how can you love me if my job sucks and I don't have any cash in the bank? Or God, how could you love me and give me the family that I was given? Or God, how could you deal with me these circumstances and still think that there's nothing that separates me from the love of God? All things we think. Vanitha Reisner, in an article, she says this on the topic of Psalm 44 in the middle of this passage on Romans that is super helpful. The implication is that when we are at our lowest, feeling abandoned by God and growing increasingly hopeless, God is actually lavishing his love on us. 
He is making us more than conquerors in the place where we've been tasting bitter defeat and can't sense his presence. While we associate the times of abundance and success with God's favor, Paul is reminding us that God's love is as strong as ever when we are facing despair and even death. The psalmist mourned that God had rejected and crushed them, implying that God was against them. But Paul reframes that perspective for Christians, asserting that even in our darkest moments, especially in our darkest moments, God is working for our good. You see, God's love is not dependent on your abilities or your affirmations or your actions. God's love is not dependent on your church attendance or your connection group attendance or your salt company attendance. God's love is not separated if you don't read your Bible in the morning or if you do. God's love is not dependent and it's not separated from you if you're sinful or sinless. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. God's love is like a never ending waterfall that buries whatever chooses to come underneath of it. It's a love that seeks the darkest and scariest moments of our life and fights to be there. God's love is found in hospital rooms, hospice care, in dorm rooms, in apartments. God's love is found in prisons and in countries where the name of Jesus is illegal, found in cities with no churches and in slums with no food. God's love is there. God's love is found in Ankeny, Iowa with students who work and live here. God's love can never be separated from those who call on him, those who call on the name of Jesus. So in the deepest parts of your sin and shame, salt Ankeny, in the deepest parts, in the darkest moments of your life, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Endless, everywhere, all the time, God's love is in the shadow of the valley of death and in the green pastures. Let me read that end of Romans 8.38 for you one more time. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That alone should be something you memorize and meditate on for the rest of your life. So we have protection justification and assurance, three things, three promises that God allows us to understand and have with us and what he has done for us. And the question remains, like now, what do we do with that? Like if those are true over my life, if all these things we've been learning about this summer are true over our life, what are we supposed to do with that? We're not done quite yet with Romans 8, 31 through 39. I wanna look back at something quickly that I think we might've missed. At the beginning, I don't know if you remember, we talked about verse 31 where it says, what are we to say about these things? You know, what are we to say about all the things that Paul has written? What are we to say about all the things that have happened in Romans 8? And Paul does it again, and you may have missed it. I missed it the first time when I was reading it. If you look with me at verse 37, it says this, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And all these things, and the promise of protection, justification, and assurance, and the promise of a new hope, a new life, a new identity, we are more than conquerors through Christ. The idea of conquering, more than that. In all these things, we are more than conquerors in Christ if we believe in him. And often we think of conquering. We think of maybe leaving this room, grabbing the swords, and charging the hill of Ankeny. I don't know what hill there is in Ankeny, but we charge it together. Or conquering, maybe you think like Salt Company, Ankeny, we're gonna go to DMAC, we're gonna overthrow the authorities there, we're gonna rename it Salt Company Community College, and then we're gonna work on taking over Ankeny. 
slowly but surely conquering the city for the name of Jesus. That, that's maybe what you think of when you think of conquering. We're not gonna do that and you shouldn't do that. Let's just leave it DMAC, it sounds cooler, go Bears, right? Go Bears, love it. We think of conquering in that way often, but that's not what it's talking about necessarily right, necessarily right here. To be more than a conqueror means this. To be more than a conqueror through Christ, listen to me, it means this. It means that the battle has already been won. It's finished. You see, when we are in Christ, when you believe in Jesus, we have protection, justification, and assurance. We didn't have to fight for it. We didn't have to earn it. You didn't have to do anything for it. What has happened already is Jesus has taken the sin and shame on the cross. He has done all those things and he has said it is done. There's nothing you need to do. You are more than a conqueror because of what has already been done. And more than a conqueror now means that the enemy's been to serve you. They have no ownership over your life. Our trials now bend to serve us. They don't wreck us, destroy us, or ruin us. Our trials were conquered and now they lead us closer to Christ. Second Corinthians 4, 17 says this, for, this, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. More than conquerors means that our afflictions only produce glory that will be revealed. If you're in Christ, it has already been finished and it's already been completed for you. More than that. So from Romans 8, 31 through 39, there are two things, if we're more than conquerors in this room tonight, that we need to do leaving this. That reading this passage, there are two things that we need to do and take home with us tonight. And the first one is this, is we need to preach. First thing is we need to preach. I know some of you are thinking right now, like I am not gonna be a preacher. I will never do what Joe does and I'm not gonna get up there every single week. I'm leaving Ankeny because I do not wanna get a microphone. Totally get it. Don't wanna be in front of people. I'm not talking about preaching on the stage or preaching at a church. What I'm saying is that we are all preachers. I'm reminded of a quote from my uh, good friend, Solomon Rexius, also my boss in Ames, also moving to Oregon. So you should come with, he's great. But I'm reminded of a quote from him that says, the most influential preacher in your life is you. I mean, who talks to you more than you? Or who, do you, who thinks more about you than you? There is no one else in the world that preaches to you more than you preach to yourself. So we need to preach and we need to preach the right things about us. It is said that you become fluent in the language when you start to dream in it. And what we need to do is we need to make Romans 8 the language that we dream in, become fluent in it. So fluent that we preach it to ourselves all the time. In our weakest moments, you need to preach to yourself that no one can bring an accusation against you. When sin and shame run your mind, you need to preach to yourself that nothing can separate you from the love of God. When you hit the end of your rope, preach to yourself that no one loves you more than God loves you. Mark Vance also said it this way, you need the language of the gospel to preach to the pressure of the moment. So in the pressures of your life, in your job or at school, it's the language of the gospel that reminds you of who you actually are. So are you fluent in the truth of Romans 8? So much so that when you fall asleep, you can't help but think that nothing can separate you from the love of God. We not only need to preach to ourselves, not only need to preach to ourselves about the truth of Romans 8, but you need to preach to your brothers and sisters in Christ. I hope and pray that every Salt Company, Salt Company Ankeny, Salt Company Ames, Salt Company Eugene, Oregon, would be people who are full, are full of people who preach Romans 8, 31 through 39 over one another. 
reminding each other of the greatest assurances we have in knowing Jesus. I mean, Paul is, hearing, is here is doing what we need to do to one another. He's saying to the Romans, hey, here are the truths about the gospel. Believe those things and now tell more people about them. Every day you need to be preaching to yourself and preaching to your friends what is true in Romans 8. John Tyson, another pastor in New York said this way, how do you become more than a conqueror? You use your story of being more than a conqueror so someone else could become one as well. The most influential preacher for the rest of your life will not be someone on a stage or part of a church you go to. The most influential preacher for the rest of your life is you. And to become the greatest preacher, all you need to do is recite the same gospel truths over and over and over again. So the second thing we need to leave here with tonight, not just preach to ourselves, we also need to persevere. We need to preach and persevere. To persevere, to persevere. If all that we read in Romans 8 is true, and which it is, then we not only need to preach to ourselves, we also need to live it out. If Herb Brooks, back to Miracle on Ice, love that movie. If Herb Brooks walked into the locker room and said the same speech to his United States hockey team, the same speech to the greatest hockey team in the world tonight, you're gonna win, all those things. And he leaves the locker room and everyone laughs as he walks out. And everyone's like, that guy is full of baloney. We're gonna get crushed. Who's this guy I think he is? Like we're this bunch of college students playing hockey. We suck, you know? They would not have won. There would not be a movie called Miracle on Ice if they didn't believe what their coach said about them. Those hockey players didn't look Coach Herb Brooks in the eyes and say, we trust you and we're with you. There's no Miracle on Ice. There's no gold medal in the 1980 Olympics. That, that game never becomes famous. There'd be no movie made. Because if you hear something that is true, but don't have the confidence to live into it, not a lot is going to change about your life. So you need to persevere in what is true about your identity. In the trials and the temptations, despair, never forget that we have a God that will never leave you and never forsake you. For others, when their well runs dry and they're in need of someone to preach to them, to them we need to be people who preach to them the truths of Romans 8. Perseverance together looks like allowing others to borrow your hope until they can find some of their own. Hebrews 12, 1 on perseverance together says it this way. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Persevere with the witnesses of the faith, pointing one another's eyes and gaze to Christ, the one who would lay his life down for you. So we need to preach to one another, preach to yourself and persevere alongside one another. Two ways to take the greatest speech in Romans 8 of protection, justification, and assurance and allow it to shape your life. Some of you, this is the reality of your life. You're a Christian. All these things that I've said tonight are true about you. You have the full assurance and full hope of the gospel inside of you. And some of you, this isn't your reality yet. I mean, there's a whisper in your head, but it's not of these things, but it can be true. You don't have to be a professional hockey team to join this team or professional hockey player to join this team. There's no prerequisite to enter in to the family of God or to have the words of Romans 8 be true over your life tonight. Some of you need a whole new language to, sp to start speaking to yourself in, a whole new language to dream in. And that language is called the gospel. 
the language that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would take your sin and your shame, that you would never have to question if you were loved, the language that no matter how much you've sinned or how much you've messed up in the past, it is not comparable to the mercy offered by our God. There is a new language offered for you tonight. And there's an invitation to take that language and have it, to be, have it be yours. The truth that all of us need to wrestle with and all of us need to, to comprehend in Romans 8. I wanna wrap up with this final story um, that's not necessarily related to Romans 8, but we're gonna share it because I think it's helpful. Um, I read this story a few years back and then I came across it again this week. Um, and it's about a, a guy, like a junior in high school in some random small Midwestern town who was a terrible student his freshman, sophomore, junior year. Awful student, awful friends, bad grades, not smart, did not do the right things in high school. His mom makes him take the SAT, the test, not the ACT, the SAT, didn't take that one, but the SAT. So he takes the SAT, you know, and a few weeks later he gets his score back. And the SAT is taken out of 1600, I believe. I don't know, I think it's 1600, 1600. And he gets his score back and it's a 1480 which means this guy tested in the top 1%. And his mom like looks at it and she's like, there's no way this is true of you. And he's like, I know, I tried to cheat and I couldn't. And so this guy is so confused. She's confused. Everyone's like, how did he get a 1480? Well, what happened is he sees the 1480 and he, all of a sudden he believes he's smart. He's like, oh, I'm a really smart guy now. So he stops hanging out with his old friends. In his senior year of high school, he's like bomb student. He's like, oh, I'm smart now. Like I'm gonna work really hard in these classes changes the way he studies, changes the way he lives. Everything about him changes because of that 1480 score. Goes to college, gets the four-year degree, probably some scholarships because he's grinding. Goes to grad school in an Ivy League school, graduates and becomes like this magazine entrepreneur, all because he got a test score that was like a 1480. 12 years later, he gets a letter in the mail and says, hey, we were reviewing some test scores from the SAT and you were given the wrong score. You actually scored a 740 which is absolutely terrible. But this is 12 years later. So it doesn't necessarily fit, but this guy thought his identity was a 1480 student. And he looked at that, even though he was a 740. So we have to acknowledge that like, he's actually like a 740 test taker. But when he said, I'm a 1480 score, I am that type of student, everything about his life changed. I mean, he went to college, he went to grad school. He was successful in his business all because he was like, oh, I am smart. This is true about me. This is what it says about me. And the same way tonight, when we have our eyes fixed on something that is true about us, it should change everything about us. God is for us. He's our protector. If God is the one who justifies and if God who give, is the one who gives us assurance that he will never leave us or forsake us, that should change everything about our lives. Salt and Kenny should be different if that is true. If our eyes are fixed on that. 1480 score students, but we're actually 1600, 1600 score students because it is a perfect love that we get to look at. And what would happen if tonight we sat here like a hockey team in the locker room, heard the greatest truth over our lives and fixed our lives on that, promised to preach the good news every single day to ourselves and remind everybody else and preach to our neighbor the good news every single day. We would be the most confident people in Ankeny, Iowa and the most confident people on the campus of DMAC, people who know the greatest news and know that it is true about them. So Miracle on Ice, it's a great story. And God can do miracles on the hockey rink, but he also wants to do miracles with us and allow and use us for his good. So Ankeny students, tonight, 
Believe that God would use your story of being more than a conqueror so someone else could be one as well. So with that, we pray and ask God that he would make us more than conquerors and turn other people's lives to be more than conquerors as well. So Father, thank you for the opportunity to be with these students tonight. For the gospel community that already exists in Ankeny and at Ankeny Salt, for people who have gone before us in this room who have laid the foundation of people who preach the good news to themselves every single day and preach it to others. God, with that gospel community, that core identity of what we believe at Salt Company be true of us this year. As we enter into the fall, would these people be the most confident people in their workplace, most confident people on DMAX campus because they have the most confidence in knowing you. That in our deepest moments of shame and darkness, deepest moments of our sin, we would not forget that your love is never, ever leaving us that we can't outrun it. We can never leave it behind. It is always chasing after us. That in you, we have a perfect and loving King who justifies us and calls us sons and daughters. And so God, with that truth, change our lives and change the lives of people around us tonight and for the rest of our lives. God, we love you and we pray, amen.